Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter number 20. I have a little title at the top of my uh, notes here that I've given the name for this sermon, The Millennial Kingdom and the Believer. We're going to talk about a thousand years this morning. All right? Thousand year reign of Christ. We have uh, a couple of verses that reference that in Revelation 20, verse 4 through verse number 6 today. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received a mark on their forehead, on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Today we are going into a rather exciting section of it, and we thank you, Lord, for it. Help us to understand and help us to appropriately apply this section to our lives, that uh, we also might uh, serve you in the fashion that we're called to. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for each one here, and for all those who have been away and traveling over the last week, our youth group as well. Keep them safe on the road, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Almost a year ago, I had the joy of sitting in a classroom in Tyndale Theological Seminary for a two-day intensive lecture. It covered the entire book of Revelation. That's pretty intensive in two days. Um, And our teacher was Dr. Charles Ryrie. And that was fun. That was a lot of fun to sit there and, and to listen to him explain the book of Revelation. He got us to chapter number 20. And uh, this is typical. I've noticed this in uh, Bible classes as well. Uh, when you start to get near the end of the time span you have, and there's still two or three chapters yet to go, uh, things kick into a different gear. All right? And uh, this is almost always true of those who teach through the end times and get to the issue of the millennial kingdom. All of a sudden it's like, okay, it's a thousand years. Now let's move on. Alright, because uh, that's uh, about how much information we get. But here's what Dr. Ryrie did. He decided he was going to give us a quiz on the millennial uh, kingdom. And uh, he made us all take out a sheet of paper. And so we all did. And he said, number one, spell the word millennium. It was funny how many could not do that. You might even be thinking right now, how do you spell the word millennium? Number two, spiritual status of all people at the beginning of the millennium are? We had to answer that. Number three, what, is the, what will be the capital of the world in the millennial period? Number four, What will be the status of Egypt 
in the millennial kingdom. Number five. Very specifically, he asks this one. He says, it's only referenced one time in all of Scripture, but what will boys and girls, those words, boys and girls, what will boys and girls be doing in the millennium? And number six, how old can one be in the millennium and still be part of the youth group? And number seven, will it rain in the millennium? All right, you should know the answers to all of those, right? So how do you spell it? Make sure you have two L's, then two N's. M-I-L-L-E, Millie, I guess, M-I-L-L-E, N-N-I-U-M, I-U-M. All right. Spiritual status of all people at the beginning of the millennium is what? Saved. They are believers. There will be babies born during the millennial period. Uh, they will start with a good old sin nature, just like you and I have. Uh, and eventually a group of rebels will come toward the end of that time period. Uh, it will grow over those years. Now, in Matthew 24 and 25, there's teaching and parables about the end of the tribulation and the second coming of Christ and the setting up of, of the millennial period, the very familiar section, Matthew 24 and 25, and most of those parables I've heard people use to teach uh, the rapture from, which I think is inaccurate, actually, uh, they are references to the end of the tribulation period, especially in chapter 25, there's a judgment of the sheep and the goats. You might be very familiar with that judgment. Uh, he's separating believers from unbelievers. And those who are believers will enter into the kingdom, and those who are unbelievers will be removed to the place of torment. So those all very appropriately fit into that time span to say that uh, those who enter into the millennial period will be believers. And they will start the, the millennial period that way. Uh, but children will be born. If you study Isaiah 64, 65, 66, those chapters there, uh, children will be born, and the evidence of sin nature is still there. For there will also be death during those years. What will be the capital of the world? Jerusalem. Isaiah 2, verse 3 says, And many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the capital. What would be the status of Egypt in the millennial period? Uh, they've been in the news lately, right? You start to wonder, what do you think of these? Isaiah 19.21 Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Wow, isn't that neat to hear? They will even worship with sacrifice and offering. They will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. What will boys and girls do in the millennial period? Zechariah 8.5. You might have known this. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Isn't that a neat little phrase? Almost picture that now, can't you? 
The streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the street. How old can one be in the millennium and still be part of the youth group? Isaiah 65:20. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will thought to be accursed. Youth group will go all the way up to 100. Alright? Will there be rain in the millennial period? Well, there'd have to be. There's crops, right? And they're going to produce more than ever before. If we understand the picture, right? Zechariah fourteen seventeen, And it will be that whichever the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So those who do serve the Lord will have rain. And those who don't, won't. Now, you heard me quote the verses that went along with some of these answers. How many of those did I pull from the book of Revelation? None. None. More is said about the millennial period in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. There is a reason for that. And we're going to highlight that as we go through this. Uh, the critics have said over the years that uh, there isn't a millennium. Some have said that. There isn't a millennium. Some believe that the millennium is allegorical or figurative. Some believe that Israel blew it, they lost their rights to the blessing of the millennium, and the church has gained all its promises. Some believe that, they, that we are now living in the millennium. Alright, take a good look outside, it doesn't look so nice, does it? Some believe that we're now living in the millennium period. Some think that the millennium has already happened in heaven since Jesus went up there and took his seat, the, as they say, they took his seat on the throne of David. And he's, in the, he's already got the millennial period apparently started in heaven. Uh, but with all the theories out there and, and beliefs as they are given, uh, there's only one that really holds to a consistent, literal interpretation of the Bible that there is a thousand year literal reign of Christ on this earth from Jerusalem, ruling over everything. That's taking scripture for just what it says, as it says it. Literal, consistent interpretation. Now, here's an easier test for you. Look through Revelation 20 here. I'm going to start reading again, but I'm going to read from verse number 2 through verse number 7. And tell me how many times you note the number 1,000. Alright, 1,000. In verse 2, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he would no longer deceive the nations, until the thousand years were completed. After those things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they who sat on it, and judgment was given to them. And I saw souls of those who had been beheaded, because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, because they had not worshipped the beast or, had it, or his image, had not received the mark on their forehead, on their hand, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has his part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. 
When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. What'd you get? Six. Do you believe that some people think that Scripture never tells you the millennial period will be a thousand years? You found it six times in just a handful of verses. And there was an emphasis, right? Almost always they said, for a thousand years, for a thousand years, for a thousand years, for a thousand years. It was just pressed on us so much. And there are those who claim the Bible never says there will be a thousand year reign of Christ. And I don't know where they're reading. All you need is a few verses right here to say it and say, okay, he will reign for a thousand years. Isn't that true? Very clear as can be, I think. We're going to talk about that millennial period, that thousand year reign of Christ. A literal one thousand years earthly reign of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem on the throne of David over all the earth. That's, the, that's my definition of what we're looking at here. I believe we, the church, will be with Christ at that time. Alright? What is the key to our understanding of the church in the end times? I gave you this phrase several weeks ago. It's all this. We will always be with the Lord, right? Always be with the Lord. Which means wherever He goes, we go. If He is in heaven, where would we be? In heaven. When He comes down to fight the battle of Armageddon, where will we be? With him, when he comes down to fight the battle of Armageddon. When he sets up his kingdom and reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years, where will we be? With him. With him. With Christ in Jerusalem for the thousand year reign. Alright? Today we have a specific question. What will believers, that's you and I, church age believers, what will we be doing in the millennial kingdom. Now, I have to give you some background before we can answer the question. One, I want to deal with the purpose of the millennium and the promise of the millennium. Both of those are related. The purpose and the promise are related. To Abraham and to his descendants, there was a promise given. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. God said, on the day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. He made him a promise of land, didn't he? And he says, I give this land to your descendants. And it's a very large chunk of land, if you map this out. The river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. That's a large chunk of territory couple of important aspects about that. They have yet to secure that entire piece of land. Even in the days of Solomon, when he reigned and, and uh, when he possessed the most territory, he didn't possess all that territory. It will be in that day that they will. The promise was made to Israel, not to the church. Mark that in your thinking. The promise of the land was given to Israel, not to the church. Given to Abraham and his descendants, right? Okay, so mark that. David was given a promise. You know what David's promise was? Had to do with his throne, right? 
God made him a promise that uh, he will have a descendant upon that throne who will reign forever and ever. That was a promise they hung on to. 2 Samuel chapter 7 goes into detail about that. Isaiah 9, 6, a verse we generally save for Christmas time. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7. It's usually not in your Christmas cards. What does it say? There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Two important aspects here. For this promise to be fulfilled, we need a king that could live forever. Alright? The average king of a lifespan of 70, 80 years, or even 100 if he makes it, will not fulfill this promise. We need one that can live forever. Number two, it's a reference to Israel and not to the church. This is a promise to David and to his house that he will have a son who will sit on this throne and be able to reign forever. We know who that son is, don't we? The Lord Jesus Christ. And is he capable of living forever? All right, he works. He fits, just like we need here. It's a reference to Israel, not to the church. There's a promise to a man named Daniel. All the way back at the end of chapter 12 of the book of Daniel, almost the very last verse, I think, verse 13. The promise was made to Daniel. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest. And rise again... For your allotted portion at the end of the age. We go through a lot of Daniel information and focus on, you know, the, the main events there. At the very end, this little precious promise is, is set before him. Daniel, you're going to live out your life. You're going to die. You're going to enter into rest. You will rise again, and then you will receive the allotted portion at the end of the age. What is true of Daniel was true of Abraham was true of David, other Old Testament saints. They lived their lives, they died, but they will rise again. They will receive their allotted portions at the end of the age. If the promise was made to them about the millennial kingdom, doesn't it make sense they have to be resurrected to enjoy it? To have it fulfilled? Many times, I'm afraid, we as church people, maybe it's just me, we, we give an awful lot of emphasis on ourselves. We talk about our rapture. We talk about the, all those things related to the church and all that. But there is a promise for Israel that includes a resurrection. A resurrection of those in the Old Testament saints that is not the church. The Old Testament saints, like Daniel, will rise again and receive their allotted portion. He made them a promise to live in the land and he will bring them back for that promise. That's a remarkable thing. It's an incredible thing. So, the millennial kingdom has a purpose, and it has a promise to fulfill. The Lord made over and over and over to his people, Israel, the Jews, concerning the land, the throne, and the saints who will live in it forever. That's his promise he made to them. 
So he has, he is going to grant that perfectly. That's part of the background you need to understand. If you want to say, who's the millennial period for? If you say Israel, you're right on the button. That is the primary purpose of what it's set up to fulfill the promises that he has made. Now, it doesn't mean it doesn't spill over to a lot of others. Because it does. More of the background. We understand, according to a lot of Old Testament passages, that there will be radical changes on this earth at this time, especially around Jerusalem. It appears that everything will be flattened out except Jerusalem itself, which will be raised up. Guess what's going to get the focus all of a sudden? Jerusalem will be seen because it will be raised up and the other places will be flattened out. There will be a river actually flowing out of Jerusalem, heading toward the Dead Sea, making it fresh water and filling it with fish. Imagine. Incredible picture. A temple will be constructed in the millennial period where all the nations of the earth will be required to come each year for the Feast of Tabernacles. Seems to be our Lord's favorite. I don't know, but he likes that one. And that's the only one that's brought up on the end is that Feast of Tabernacles. And they are required to come and worship him every single year. The nations of the earth are to come. Alright? Jesus will reign in Jerusalem. He will reign in righteousness. He will rule with the rod of iron. You remember those verses? So, those who deserve punishment will be punished. Those who deserve praise will be praised. For the first time ever, fathom this, for the first time ever, this world will know what it's like to have a purely righteous ruler over them. We have never seen that. We will see that when Christ reigns. It will be a spiritually centered government. In the fullest measure, a spiritually centered government. There will be a government which is completely righteous in all its dealings. You won't have newspapers in that day with scandal information. Can you imagine a kingdom like that? It will be a time of peace. Because what is the title of the one on the throne? The Prince of Peace. There will be a time of prosperity. I think very similar to the Garden of Eden. The curse will be lifted to a degree that the deserts will be harvested because of the produce. It will be a time, this is what fascinates me and it says it often in Scripture, a time when people will be eager to learn of the Lord and they will worship together. They will worship Him. Now you would think, given all these aspects, that there is no way anyone could reject the Lord in that, can they? Put them in a perfect environment, there's no way they're going to they're gonna disobey the Lord, right? Garden of Eden was pretty good too. And they managed to muff that up. And sure enough, we read in, in Revelation, you saw a hint of it there, but it's also into verse number 8 of chapter 20, that Satan just gets his chance at the end after a thousand years, and that old sin nature is still in some of the man that's on this earth, and they, they follow after Satan, they sin and they rebel, and there will be a rebellion, and according to this word, it says in verse 8, 
that this group will gather for war against the Lord and the number of them will be like the sand of the seashore. Could you imagine that many people in rebellion against the Lord even in a perfect kingdom environment? That only shows you the depravity of man, doesn't it? Let me point out a couple more pieces of information because I haven't talked about you and me yet, have I? But I've got to talk about this too. There will be unique rulers in Jerusalem uh, and during the millennial period. According to Jeremiah chapter uh, 30 verse 9, Ezekiel 37 verse 24 and 25, and you'll find other verses in Ezekiel too, David himself will be ruling on a throne in Jerusalem. The promise was made. And God said it specifically that David will rule. So David's got to be resurrected for that, doesn't he? Resurrected and given rule. Here's the two verses. Ezekiel 37:24. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have all they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. It seems specifically that David has a job to do. The Lord will rule over the earth, and David will be one of his governors over Jerusalem. Also, the disciples always had questions, remember, concerning the kingdom. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, will you let us sit on your right and your left? And all these other things. They always were trying to find out who can sit next to him, right? This is what Jesus answered one day in Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He has a specific job for the twelve apostles to sit on the thrones and rule over the twelve tribes of Israel. Alright, so there are unique offices that will be filled during this time period. The world's population will be quite unique too. This is going to thoroughly mess up the current census uh, collection uh, process. Imagine this. You have these different blocks to check on a census form. For there will be resurrected Old Testament saints in glorified bodies with no physical limitations and not subject to the decay of age or death on the earth. Imagine that. You're walking down the street and there's Noah. Hey Noah! You know, there's Jonah standing there, down the street, that's where Abraham is. It, these folks we've read about are going to be walking on this earth in resurrected bodies. There will be resurrected church age believers, that's you and me. We will be there in our post-rapture glorified bodies. Without physical limitations or subject to the decay of age or death. There will be resurrected tribulational saints there. Matter of fact, we saw that group in verse number 4, when it talked about those in the middle. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus. 
because of the word of God, because they did not worship the beast? What are you talking about there? Tribulational saints. They did not fall for the beast in his ways. They lost their lives. They came to life, it says, the end of verse number four, and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So tribulational saints will be there too. Tribulational saints. They have just previously died, and now they're brought back in their resurrected, glorified bodies with no limitations, not to decay and not to age. All right? Then, we will have living saints there. Living saints, they survived the tribulation. They entered into the kingdom of Christ. They will still be in their normal human state like you and I understand it. They will still be in their bodies that are subject to death and subject to the decay of age and capable of sinning. They are capable of living enormous periods of time, as we just saw in a verse previously, much like the people before the flood who lived 900 years, Methuselah, 969 years. They'll be capable of that. But normal human beings like you and I will be living here too. There will be others who will be born, some of them who will grow up and live in rebellion against the Lord. But there will be children born at that time too. So, the Census Bureau comes out with a new form. Check the appropriate box. Who are you? An Old Testament saint? A church age saint? Tribulational saint? Or one who is subject to age, sin, and death? I guess that's going to be their options. That's going to be unique, isn't it? Could you imagine our earth with that kind of a population? But that's the way it will be. And that's what we will see. Now, from all of these things, you may ask, okay, so what are we going to be doing? Because are we going to be there? Yes, how do we know? Because we're always with Him, right? And if He's here, then we are here too. Now, let me give you your clues as to what you're going to be doing. Chapter 20, verse number 4, Then I saw thrones, as they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. Then he goes to say, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Now, we've got to ask, these thrones are set up, who are they who sat on them? Let's trace the word they a little bit with this and see who it can be. Well, I'm not sure it's uh, the tribulational saints mentioned in the latter part of the verse because of the way the sentence is constructed. Now, at the end of verse number four, it does say they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. But I think they're referencing two different groups in this passage. Some are on thrones, and then these are also raised up, and they sit on thrones, and they reign too. So, I think it's, it's, it's not the tribulational saints being referenced as the they who sat on the thrones. And if I start backing up in the text, I would see just before that, in 20, chapter 1 through 3, we're talking about Satan. And I know it can't be him, if I'm tracing a pronoun, it, it wouldn't fit, would it? Number one, it uses the word they. But where is Satan during this time? He's locked up, isn't he? What do we just see at the end of verse number two? They bound him for a thousand years. So he's not there. He's tied up. So that's, they can't reference him. Uh, so we start backing up a little bit more. We go into chapter uh, 19 a little bit here. 
And what do we see at the end of chapter 19? We're talking about the beast and the false prophet. Well, that's, that's a they. Maybe it's them. Now, I know, you, you know I'm being a little silly with this. But that's not them. How do we know? Where are they during the tribula- or millennial period? They're already in the lake of fire, aren't they? So it's not them. So we have to keep backing up in the text to say, well, who could this they be? Uh, it can't be the armies of the earth that are mentioned before that, because verse 15 tells us of chapter 19 that his mouth comes from a sharp sword, and with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. So the nations of the earth, the armies, are struck down and killed. So it's not them. We're starting to run out of days, aren't we? Keep backing up. Who's talked about just before that? Verse number 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who did we say that was? Ta-da! There we are. The church age believers. They come down with him. He fights a war. He gets rid of the Antichrist. He gets rid of the false prophet. He binds Satan in the uh, abyss for a thousand years. And then he says, and we set up thrones and they sat on it. In the context, who was they? Had to have been the church age people. Had to have been. In, in, In the best I could tell, that's what it would speak of. Church age people. So, we get a first clue here. If Christ is sitting on the throne and we're with Him, guess what we're doing? Sitting on the thrones with Him. It's supposed to be referenced with Christ. Wherever He goes, we go. So, with Him. Now, add chapter 20, verse number 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Emphasize the last part of that. But first, let's break it down just a touch. First resurrection? What's that? Oh, we've seen that reference before. Let me see. How about 1 Corinthians 15? 1 Corinthians 15. It's a good place to go. Let's look at a handful of verses here. Start in verse number 20. We studied this once before. Time for a review. 1 Corinthians 15.20 But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruit, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Who's that? Us. All right. And each in his own order, it says in verse 23. 24. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom of the God and Father, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he must put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things be put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted 
uh, who has put all things in subjection to him. But when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. You say, wow, how do you unravel this one? This is a simple picture. It speaks of the first resurrection. Christ is the first fruit. Because of his resurrection, everyone who believes in him also participates in the first resurrection. It's all part of that picture. And notice how he mingled two thoughts all the way through this passage. The first resurrection and the millennial kingdom. The first resurrection and the millennial kingdom. Did you see it? How, how he says, he must reign, he must reign, enemies put under his feet, all things put in subjection to him. What time is he going to do that? The millennial reign of Christ. And he speaks of those who are part of the first resurrection, and he includes you and I in that verse, verse number 23, those who are Christ at his coming. So we're part of this, and we go into the millennial kingdom with him, part of the first resurrection. All right? That's important for us to note, because here in our chapter, Revelation 6, verse 20, he says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Identification time. Who is blessed and holy? Aren't those the believers? That's a description of a believer. Matter of fact, incapable of dying. They have no part in the second death, do they? Second death has no power over them, it says in verse number 6. So, here are those who are blessed and holy and capable of dying. There's your believer. And what are they doing At the end of verse 6, they are priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. What is the role of a priest? Well, if we talk about the role of a prophet, he represents God to man, doesn't he? God has a message for the people. He calls it prophet, says, go tell them. And they say, thus saith the Lord, and they give them the message. That's a prophet. A priest represents the other idea from man to God. He's the one who brings out the sacrifices on behalf of sinful man. He's the one who's supposed to teach them about what's right on behalf of sinful man. To bring them to God. To bring them to God. Guess what our job will be? We will be priests. What is that role? We're leading others to worship Christ. And honestly, who would be better at this than those who know him so well? What is our identification? That we saw earlier in our study. We are the bride of Christ. Don't brides like to talk about their husbands? Should. Consider the perfect environment. The perfect situation. What is a church supposed to be doing? Proclaiming the excellencies of Him. Who called us out of darkness and placed us into the light. Proclaiming the excellencies of Him. What do you think a priest is supposed to do? Encourage other people by telling them how great our Savior is. Don't we know Him to be great? Guess what we're going to be doing? Encouraging men, the nations of the earth, who are standing there wondering, who is this Lord who sits on the throne? We've got a testimony, don't we? We know what He has done for us. We know what grace means. 
Matter of fact, we know it perfectly by that time. Because here we have already graduated to heaven. We've been put in glorified bodies. We've been decked out in the wedding garb. We've received our rewards. And then he brings us back with him so we can proclaim to the rest of the living world how great he is. We will be priests of God and of Christ. That's our role. That's what it says. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12 says to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Do you think that ends when you die? I don't think so. Matter of fact, it's just starting. We enter into the eternal state and we're going to say forever, forever, forever we're going to speak of the praise of His glory. Do you think we're just going to suspend it for the millennial period? I don't think so. So you say, well, what are we going to do? We're going to be praising the Lord and leading others to come and worship Him now. You know, it's probably not a bad thing if we start practicing that, huh? That's our forever job. We will be giving praise to Him as a priest. Another duty we're called to. It says here that we will reign with Him. For a thousand years. And you say, well, what's that? What do you, what do you mean reign? Well, go back with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 for a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a rather intriguing little passage. Paul uses a principle that we're going to talk about here to reprimand the Corinthians with. He really does. They, at this time, as Paul's writing to them, they were busy suing each other. Wonderful church body, huh? They were busy suing each other. Uh, They were behaving terribly. Most of the time, their behavior ended up in a courtroom. And they were being judged by unbelievers. Picture that. The church having conflict and taking those issues, church issues, to the secular, unchurched judges to solve their problems. Do you find something not right in that picture? Paul did. He says, verse number one, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? says in verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Ooh, hang on to that. If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute even the smallest law courts? Do you not know, verse number 3, that you will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Paul says, What kind of church is this? If you can't solve your little problems, what's going to make you capable of doing your job in the millennial period when you've got to judge the earth and judge angels? In other words, get your act together, right? (laughs) This isn't right for you Corinthians to behave like this. But you just noticed two things that he mentioned. We're going to reign with Christ, right? We're going to have a role. I want to stop especially on the idea of judging angels. Isn't that kind of a peculiar phrase? How do you judge an angel exactly? And which angels do you have? You've got two categories. The good and the bad. Elect and evil. We have two different branches of 
of uh, angels here. Some say, well, we're going to be judging the fallen angels. In other words, they, they were rotten, right? So that we're going to be judging them for, for this. And some say, no, 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 we're not judging fallen angels. We're just overseeing the good angels. Overseeing them. Uh, some of you carry, I know, MacArthur's study Bible and things, and he might have this note in there. But he says, the Greek word for rule or judge is to rule or govern. Since the Lord himself will judge fallen angels, there's passages to that effect, the Lord himself will do that. It is likely this means that we will have some rule in eternity over holy angels. Since angels are ministering spirits sent to serve the saints, it seems reasonable that they will serve us in glory. So, that sounds interesting and intriguing, doesn't it? You need some popcorn? Who do you send? Nah, it's not like that. Judging angels. They're ministering. That's their role. They serve as ministering to the saints. And is that, is all of a sudden they're unemployed when the millennial kingdom comes along? Perhaps not. Perhaps that's still what we're going to do. I especially like what J. Vernon McGee did with this passage because so many different ideas come from it. He says, this certainly opens up a whole new vista of truth. I do not understand what this means. It is beyond my comprehension. All I know is that man was made a little lower than the angels, and through redemption, man was lifted to a place of fellowship with God, a position above the angels. Also, God permitted the fall. He would never have permitted that if it would not work out for good. It will result in bringing man to a higher position. We are going to be over the angels. We are going to judge them and have charge over them. May I say again, this is beyond my comprehension, but I believe it. I like that. That's all it came down to. I believe it. That's what it says. I believe it. So, it is a difficult passage. But here's what we can be clear about. We will be in a position of reigning, won't we? That's what he intends for his his saints to do. That will include angels. We have some kind of authority to that degree in the millennial kingdom. It certainly doesn't sound like we'll be doing nothing. I know the emphasis is on Israel. There's promises to Israel and all that. We're not taking their place. We have a job there. And we will be with Christ. I'm not even sure we've scratched the surface yet of the millennial period. There's so much more to it. Some people are still trying to spell it. And here we've tried to understand it a little bit. The simple point I want to draw out of this is we will witness it firsthand. He's not going to leave us up in heaven for a thousand years and say, I'll come back later. He takes us with him. We will participate in it. We won't take Israel's place, but we will have an important role there too. And the simple point is this. As the Lord's bride, we'll be pointing people to him. There will be a need of that, even in that day and age. We will have to bring people to worship him and bring glory to him. A task we should be about today, too. So, this is what the church is called to do. Millennial period. Thousand years on this earth. Looking forward to it? It's going to be great. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. There is so much here that when we talk into the future, we... We try to grasp it. Uh, it's hard at times, and yet it can be simplified with, with uh, a few choice words. 
Lord, it's your word that we're struggling with and, and seeking to understand. We trust you. We know that uh, these things will come about just as you promised them to. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for that. We are so thankful to belong to you. What a blessing it is to walk through the end time prophecies and say, this is where the believer is. This is where the believer is. And every single time we can make it simple and say, the believer is with you. What a joy just to say that and to know it, Lord. We praise you for it. We've got a lot to do down here on this earth till our Savior should come. And perhaps it might be that day when he comes for us. But in the meantime, teach us to practice our duties already and point people to you and be quick to, that we may be quick to speak of the glory of Christ and the wonderful things he has done. And perhaps through our testimony, others may come to know him too and join forever with us in these wonderful places that we spend forever with our Savior. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.